Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the second in our uh, series on William Blake. Quite a lot of you, I think, came to the first lecture. Um, be that as it may, some of you didn't. And I did just want to say that Blake is a seminal figure for Temenos, a profoundly important sort of founding father, not simply because Kathleen Raine was a scholar in William Blake, but because Blake's views on the nature of the world are very much what Temenos seeks to teach and seeks to keep alive. So this is our second, second lecture, um, entitled Poet, Visionary and Painter. And it's given tonight by Jack Herbert, um, who has the distinction of having read Blake at Cambridge with Kathleen Raine as his teacher. Jack is a, a, long, is a key, long and active member of the Council of Temenos, um, and he's also a fellow. Um, he's an author and a scholar in his own right, and has been involved with uh, teaching continuing education at Cambridge for many years. I've known Jack for some five or six years through Temenos, and I have the greatest, always had the greatest regard for his core interests. But what I've always enjoyed about Jack is that he has allowed his mind to look at other areas, um, and thinking particularly than the work of Carl Jung, which has very much uh, kept, uh, I believe, his own uh, scholarly work alive. Now tonight he'll speak to us for about an hour, and we will then have 15 to 20 minutes of questions, slightly depending on when we finish. But I have no hesitation in commending uh, Jack Herbert to you, uh, and I know that it'll be a very interesting talk. Well, thank you very much, Nicholas. Thank you. <laughs> Just before I begin, ladies and gentlemen, I will put the first slide on, if that, yes, and leave that there, just to um, slide us gently into the world of William Blake. Um, this is the only official oil portrait of Blake done during his lifetime and painted in the year 1807 when Blake was 50 by the Royal Academician Thomas Phillips. So it's a very good portrait of Blake, I think, looking suitably inspired. Now, um, what I have to say this evening will in some sense complement what, what my colleague Brian Keeble said last week, and it will also indeed mesh in with some of the things that Brian said. In terms of understanding Blake, um, my lecture will try and offer several ways of approaching uh, this complex body of work together with a number of specific points and insights, leading to tools for interpretation that will hopefully enable you to get some real purchase on the poetry, the painting, and the kind of visionary quality these would seem to embody. This will involve me in making some connections with Blake's life and what we know about his way of perceiving things the nature and mode of his imagination, if you like, but also his links to the age he lived in and through, an unusually turbulent period, both politically and artistically. 
For instance, I shall be particularly concerned with his relationship to the inherited and ongoing culture of his day, the shifts in sensibility and ideas which occurred, but also with the nature and structure of his inner worlds and the kind of visual and intellectual roots these suggest. My talk will divide up into roughly five uh, main areas. Firstly, a discussion of overall and most specific uh, qualities in Blake's painting, poetry, and inner worlds. Secondly, the interconnected roles of poet, painter, engraver, and visionary, plus the creation of the illuminated book. Thirdly, the nature and mode of Blakean perception and imagination. Fourthly, the impact of the Gothic, or really neo-Gothic revival. Fifthly, neoclassicism, or the Greek revival, and its central function in Blake's work. In section three, also, I shall also touch on an area too large to include uh, um, this evening. That is Blake's inner journey and the problem of reintegration. But I will touch on this again next week in my second lecture. Clearly, all five areas will overlap at times, but the separation into specific themes will help me and yourselves, I hope, to focus on particular aspects of Blake's composite and difficult work and so untangle some of the weave. So the first section, overall and more specific qualities. To begin with perhaps the most basic, vis-a-vis -vis Blake's paintings, engravings, and illustrations, we get the supremacy of the line. Something to be only expected from someone trained as an engraver and apprenticed to a severely linear master at that, James Bazire. Um, hence an emphasis throughout on linearity to which incidentally color and depth are subordinated. Um, I've shown as an example of this perhaps one of Blake's most colorful and, and, and dramatically colorful um, paintings. It's from the series on Job, illustrations of the book of Job. He did at the end of his life, Satan um, smiting Job with sore boils. It's done on mahogany. It was done as a single piece. Uh, there may be various copies of it. Pen and tempera on mahogany. But there you see that wherever you, wherever you look, um, there are sharp divisions between the various color um, areas, wherever you go. And as I say, I've, I've chosen it deliberately because it is one of the most splendid of Blake's uh, um, paintings. But nevertheless, the colors are always bounded by the line. Um, now, the... The linear, or this linear predominance, as we shall see, is not only visually defining, as I've just said, but connects with the visionary as well. And we will start by, if you look, I hope you all got um, um, one of the handouts here. Um, if you look at um, passage number three. Yes, um, I think there are some coming down to you. Um, I'll just read passage number three. I will be uh, using uh, the sheets quite a bit, though I won't uh, quote all of them. Passage number three is very kind of, um, what's the word I want, fundamental. The great and golden rule of art, as well as of life, is this. 
that the more distinct, sharp, and wiry the bounding line, the more perfect the work of art, and the less keen and sharp, the greater is the evidence of weak imitation, plagiarism, and bungling. Great inventors in all ages knew this. Protogenes and Apelles knew each other by this line. Raphael and, and Michelangelo and Albert Dürer are known by this and this alone. How do we distinguish one face or countenance from another? But by the bounding line and its infinite inflections and movements, what is it that distinguishes honesty from knavery, but the hard and wiry line of rectitude and certainty in the actions and intentions? Leave out this line, and you leave out life itself. All is chaos again, and the line of the Almighty must be drawn out upon it before man or beast can exist. Talk no more then of Correggio or Rembrandt or any other of those plagiaries of Venice or Flanders. This, of course, is very much Blake's position, of course. <coughs> From our point today, perhaps exaggerated, but I will come back. I will be saying quite a bit about this. Um, now, extreme sharpness and clarity of line are being advocated as the distinguishing mark of all great art, as opposed to the relative absence of line, the less keen and sharp in Correggio and Rembrandt, or in the Venetian and Flemish schools, um, where chiaroscuro, the contrastive use of light and shade and, and colouring, predominate. Blake's pictures, incidentally, have no shadows, no shadows at all. The artists he uh, praises are significantly classical Greek, Protagonies and Apelles, and Italian and German Renaissance, Raphael, Michelangelo, and Dürer, all of whom are relatively more linear and less colorist, shall we say, than the Venetians, Titian, and Giorgione. In any case, much of the continental art <coughs> excuse me, that came his way, apart from what he chanced to see at London exhibitions and private collections, was seen in engraved form, which would have accentuated the linearity even more. In line with all this, then, color is relatively subsidiary for Blake, even though he can often attain to some beautifully transparent and luminous um, effects. Look at passage number five on the sheets. Coloring does not depend on where the colors are put, but on where the lights and darks are put. And all depends on form or outline, on where that is put. Where that is wrong, the coloring can never be right. <coughs> One can therefore understand how um, uh, Blake maintains that his artistic purpose has been the revival of the Florentine school, which he names the true style of art. This is passage number four. To recover art has been the business of my life to the Florentine original, and if possible, to go beyond that original. This I thought the only pursuit worthy of a man. To imitate I abhor. I obstinately adhere to the true style of art, such as uh, Michelangelo, Raphael, uh, uh, Giulio Romano, um, Albert Dürer uh, left it. The art of invention, not of imitation. Imagination is my world. <coughs> um, now, this definition of the true style of art is a definition which uh, we will see uh, that the neoclassic painters and sculptors of his own day, John Flaxman, Antonio Canova, um, Jacques-Louis David, um, James Barry, a friend of his and others, used of their own works. Um, 
Indeed, one can say at this point, in conjunction with what I've been saying, what I've been quoting from Blake already, um, the period, I'll say something about this later on, the period is very much a period, particularly as you go into the 1790s, of what you might call political confrontation. Um, it is also um, a period of painterly confrontation. I mean, Blake's position is obviously seen today quite extreme. And there were kind of, of, of um, opposed positions throughout the visual field uh, in this country as elsewhere. Um, in the last passage quoted, um, also Blake introduces another staple feature of his visual approach to things, namely what he calls the art of invention, not of imitation, by which he means in the light of the four painters he instances, an art that is imaginatively freestanding, as in the so-called history painting of the day. This was an, uh, um, an acknowledged term that was used, history painting. Um, not an imitation of nature, as in landscape and portrait painting, the latter of which he particularly um, disliked. This is an example, one example I will show you. I won't go into the subject matter, it will take me too long, by contemporary of Blake's Benjamin West, who actually um, was American, was a brilliant young American, and became the uh, court painter to George III. It illustrates an episode from Greek history, Cleombrotus ordering into banishment, or ordered into banishment by Leonidas II, king of Sparta. This came out in, in um, 1768. Um, all I want to, um, I want to say nothing about the story behind this. You will see, first of all, uh, the, the, the dress is obviously classical, goes without saying, but what is, pushes towards Blake, though it's very much more muted, is the, um, dramatic gesturing here and the sentiment. This is more representative, perhaps, coming so early. Um, Blake would only be 11 in, in, uh, um, uh, uh, in 1768. Uh, what you might call the school of sensibility and sentiment. This is coming, this is approaching also through to the, what you might call full stage romanticism, which only gets underway in the 1790s. But this is very much um, a, a product of uh, the school of history painting. <coughs> um, it is then characteristic... Um, oh, yes, no, I should say, first of all, that um, um, Blake, I've said, um, um, was not interested in disliked imitation of nature, as in landscape and portrait painting. He specifically disliked portrait painting. A totally different visual world altogether. So it's characteristic that after mentioning the art of invention, <coughs> he justifies it with the explanatory statement, imagination is my world, thereby underpinning his chosen type of art with its own rationale. And imagination itself is defined in terms of, of linearity if you look at the epigraph to a very late dramatic sketch of Blake that came out in 1822 called The Ghost of Abel, where he says, nature has no outline, but imagination has. So outline is not a characteristic of nature, and nature is not per se characteristic of the world of imagination, um, in fact, outline is characteristic of the world of imagination from Blake's point of view. 
And I think it's only fair to say that this association of the world of imagination, however we interpret it, through outline is, is specific to Blake and very specific, as you will see, to what I call the spirit of the Greek revival or neoclassicism into which Blake automatically moved. <coughs> but return briefly to our first passage, number three on the sheets, which extends the great and golden rule of art into life. In both cases, it is this bounding line, as Blake terms it, which distinguishes and separates faces and forms in a work of art, and further sorts out moral from non-moral motives and actions. In this sense, the bounding line becomes an ethical instrument dividing up the human scene and establishing fundamental order. So much so that being viewed as the line of the Almighty, it is for Blake the very principle of creation itself, without which the world as we know it, or as Blake knew it, could not exist. As he says there, leave out this line and you leave out life itself. Um, all is chaos again, and the line of the Almighty must be drawn out upon it before man or beast can exist. As we shall see, line as such becomes a staple and defining landmark of neoclassical painting and thinking, as witnessed George Cumberland's thoughts on outline of 1796, which Blake knew well. He possessed a copy of the book. <coughs> and as the bounding line undoubtedly has roots in the clarity and order of the Enlightenment and its earlier classicism and Palladianism. Now, all this sounds paradoxical as soon as we remember the totally negative uh, um, emphasis Blake is always placing in his poetry on any kind of bound, limit, or circumscribing constriction. Temperamentally and ideologically, he is completely against anything or anybody that restricts and binds as confirmed in the role given to one of his central mythological characters, Eurizen, who personifies such activities as well as enlightenment um, rationality. There he is. This is the um, frontispiece to his early prophetic book, Europe, of 1794, and you see Eurizen there uh, circumscribing with his compasses um, the universe. This is based on, on a quote from, uh, from Proverbs um, chapter um, 8 and also um, on an action uh, in Paradise Lost book 7. But you will probably um, remember that compasses are also used by Newton in Blake's famous color print of Newton. And the symbolic um, action that is represented in compasses is of this kind. It is rationality per se. It's the rational mind um, kind of projecting itself onto the world, onto matter, and is, al is always in Blake a, um, a negative symbol. Whatever we get compasses, um, it is negative. In fact, perhaps I could, I could say this, that if you go through Blake's symbolism, either in the text or in the... Um, uh, the illustrations, once you pick up the way in which his symbols uh, um, a, a kind of um, uh, what they suggest what they, and how they hang together, you will find that there is quite a strict logic in the various symbols he uses. That is to say, he doesn't contradict himself symbolically. Compasses are always what I've just suggested, 
And birds flying up into the air are always the opposite, going into freedom or going into the infinite or uh, whatever. There's a whole range of symbols that he keeps on using. <coughs> now, in the book of Eurizen, for instance, we see uh, Eurizen, the character, exulting with, I alone, even I, the winds merciless bound. While at the close of Song of Liberty in the chorus section, we get the triumphant call for, quote, the priests of the Raven of Dawn no longer to lay the bound or build the roof under the jurisdiction, as we see elsewhere, of Eurizen himself, and with his enlightenment side consequently abhorred by Blake. Now, as we've often been told and as we can note for ourselves, Blake is in so many obvious ways anti-enlightenment. In his attack on reason, mechanical science with its embodiment in Newton, Lockean empiricism, and a religious deism that believed in God but minus revelation. What he denounces, in fact, in his early tractate, there is no natural religion, 1788, the term used for deism during his times. But we tend to view him as totally anti-enlightenment and pro-romantic. This is, I think, in the main, undoubtedly true, but Blake is a highly complex figure who cannot be so simply pigeonholed. For example, <clears throat> he certainly took on board and kept those weapons from the Enlightenment's critical arsenal dealing with ecclesiastical um, superstition, what he calls holy mystery. Mystery is always a negative term, incidentally, in Blake. In A Little Boy Lost, clericalism in general, the priests in black gowns walking their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires from the Garden of Love in Songs of Experience. And, of course, kings and courts all together. And a marvelous statement uh, by Blake in this vein is the one that comes in passage 12. I'll read from the... It comes from the Marriage of Heaven and Hell, <coughs> and I'll start with line 3. This is a brilliant expose and account of what Blake called the growth and formation of organized religion. If we say that Blake was religious, he wasn't in any organized way. He disliked organized religion of any kind. It was much more personal, as you will see in this passage. The ancient poets animated all sensible objects with gods or geniuses, calling them by the names and adorning them with the properties of woods, rivers, mountains, lakes, cities, nations, and whatever their enlarged and numerous senses could perceive. And particularly, they studied the genius of each city and country, placing it under its mental deity, till a system was formed which some took advantage of and enslaved the vulgar by attempting to realize or abstract the mental deities from their objects. Thus began priesthood, choosing forms of worship from poetic tales. And at length they pronounced that the gods had ordered such things. Now that is pure enlightenment thinking, um, um, enlightenment thinking um, in its critique, shall we say. Um, <coughs> and, the, and the word a system is, is typically enlightenment. That's when it first, this kind of meaning of system began to be invented or, or found or used in, 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 in this way and used critically. But when we come to the last uh, um, um, sentence, then Blake's go, goes over in a different way. Thus men forgot that all deities reside in the human breast, which is not enlightenment at all. 
Enlightenment believes in the deism that relates the structure, the so-called scientific structure, of the outside world to the reasonableness of God and the reasonableness of Newtonian man. So he does a kind of volce facie there. What I'm really saying is that Blake picks up, Blake's a complex figure. He's very anti-Enlightenment, but he's not totally so. He, 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 he uses the critique in the Enlightenment arsenal and uses it in its own way. And sometimes he picks up Enlightenment's, uh, um, Enlightenment arguments to criticize the Enlightenment. Um, so he's extremely complex, uh, he's extremely complex um, in this particular area. Um, now, a few months before he died, Blake wrote in a letter to George Cumberland the following revealing, and I think very moving statement. This is not on your sheets. Flaxman is gone, and we must all soon follow everyone to his own eternal house, leaving the delusive goddess nature and her laws to get into freedom from all law of the members, I take it that's the members of the body, into the mind in which everyone is king and priest in his own house. In typical Blakean fashion, I think, those external figures of authority, which he so much disliked, king and priest, are internalized here, thereby placing the poet painter in what I think is virtually a Quaker position. Something not at all unlikely when one remembers that the followers of Jakob Burma, the so-called Bahmanists, as they were called in this country, were apparently swept up into the Quaker movement early on and that Blake himself was, by 1793 via William Law's English translation, a great admirer of Burma and considerably influenced by him, as we know from the marriage of heaven and hell. At the same time, he was obviously um, affected by antinomianism, antinomus, anti-the-law. Uh, the doctrine already present in the early church, in the early Christian church, which held that Christians are freed by grace from obeying the Mosaic law that, as we know, Blake invaded against all his life and saw embodied in his figure Eurism. Hence, both Quakerism, um, antinomianism, and also Swedenborgianism. He was influenced early on by Swedenborg, between which there were links in what you might call the religious subculture of the day, would have reinforced the poet's anti-authoritarianism and meshed with his 1790s revolutionary ardor and total love of freedom. I can't go into this this evening, but I see Blake, um, however one talks about his, um, his, his visual art side and his poetry art side, is ideological in very many ways, coming out of what you might call, perhaps unjustifiably this term, one should perhaps upgrade it, out of the religious political subculture of the day. We have to remember Blake was an artisan, an engraver, and all kinds of people from this particular kind of class were very active during this time, having millenarial um, um, you know, kind of visions or uh, kind of, of prospects of what was going to happen. Um, and they gathered around, say, Blake's early publisher, Joseph Johnson, um, of, uh, of whose circle Wordsworth was in his early days um, a member, and so on and so forth. Uh, Blake seems to come out from what you might call a dissenting uh, tradition in that way, which has a definitely religious and political wing. This is why in Blake the religious and the political go together. One comes out of the other and crosses over into the other. To sum up then at this juncture, 
The bounding line of Blake's visual work stands in contrast to and in tension with that work's liberating base in thought and impulsion, as does the emphasis on the related principle of minute particulars, Blake's phrase, implied in distinguishing one face or countenance from another, and boldly stated in pronouncements like the following. This comes from Jerusalem, plate 69. For the sanctuary of, Ma uh, for the sanctuary of Eden is in the outline, in the circumference, and every minute particular is holy, where outline and minute particular are sacralized together. Or, quote again, plate 91, general forms have their vitality in particulars. Then, again, from plate 55, he who would do good to another must do it in minute particulars. General good is the plea of the scoundrel, hypocrite, and flatterer. For art and science cannot exist but in minutely organized particulars and not in generalizing demonstrations of the rational power. Now, in this last ex ex extract, as in the previous one, we get particulars pitted against generalities, but also, as with our very first passage concerning the great and golden rule of art, an extension of aesthetic principle into life, that is, doing good to others via minute particulars. Clearly, the generalizing drive, the tendency to plot all specific instances of something along the same curve, is being viewed here as, quote, demonstrations of the rational power, an enlightenment characteristic which Blake rejects. Indeed, generalizing as an activity is almost always used negatively. As in his annotations to Sir Joshua Reynolds's discourses um, about 1808, <coughs> where Reynolds at one point says that the Quote, disposition to abstractions, to generalizing and classification is the great glory of the human mind. To which Blake angrily replies, to generalize is to be an idiot. To particularize is the alone distinction of merit. General knowledges are those knowledges that idiots possess. And again, later another comment, Rem Rembrandt was a generalizer, Poussin was a particularizer. In such outbursts, Blake has been deliberately anti-18th century in his broadest sense. On the other hand, this did not mean that the general was taboo when it resulted from a real and true acknowledgement of the underlying particulars, as in, quote, all broad and general principles belong to benevolence who protects minute particulars, everyone in their own identity. Blake, it seems, felt strongly that the continual stress on the general in Enlightenment thinking and morality invalidated any deeply felt concern with individual identities. For example, he says in Jerusalem, plate 55, the infinite alone resides in definite and determinate identity, so that they were ironed out and disregarded. His approach seems to have been the reverse, from particulars to the general. Quote, so he who wishes to see a vision this is interesting, a perfect whole must see it in its minute particulars, organized and not as thou, O fiend of righteousness, pretends. Now, the second field, interconnected roles and the illuminated book. Blake's threefold role as poet, painter, engraver, and visionary is central to understanding the distinctive nature of his overall achievement, including his creation of what may be termed the first modern art book. Written, designed, illustrated, and printed by himself. This also means that the scholar trying to master Blake has to be competent in literature, art, visionary traditions, and the intellectual sources feeding all these. And this is no mean 
um, thing to do all this. This is why Blake is, I'm saying this because this to me constitutes one of the difficulties of really getting to grips with Blake's work. <coughs> First of all though, and with passage number one on our sheets in mind, we shall examine the nature of the threefold role just referred to. Blake says here, poetry, painting, and music, the three powers in man of conversing with paradise, which the flood did not sweep away. <coughs> um, the three arts of poetry, painting, and music mentioned here are seen as three powers in man, specific yet, all, yet also endemic, which of their nature one might call active agencies. These agencies embodied in their respective arts are capable of conversing with paradise, therefore transcending both the fall and Noah's flood, two cataclysmic events cutting man off from the realm of the spiritual and his former state of grace. The three arts mentioned, however, have survived to put us back in touch with an unfallen state of being, whatever name we give to it, to reconnect us with the higher realm while here below. This is why Yeats, in his essay, William Blake and the Imagination, could say of him, quote Yeats, he announced the religion of art of which no man dreamed in the world he knew. And of course it is the imagination which constitutes the three powers we have just been talking about, and which he makes quite plain if you look at passage, the first sentence of passage two, one power alone makes a poet, imagination, the divine vision. Where in true Blakean fashion it is correlated with what is religious and visionary. Yeats then goes on to formulate in his own inimitable way like this. He had learned from Jacob Burma and from old alchemist writers that imagination was the first emanation of divinity. The body of God, the divine members, and he drew the deduction, which they did not, that the imaginative arts were therefore the greatest of divine revelations and that the sympathy with, um, with all living things, sinful and righteous alike, which the imaginative arts awaken, is that forgiveness of sins commanded by Christ. Uh, it seems to be very bleak in that, that Yeats has formulated. The sympathy with all living things that Yeats is talking about here is encapsulated in the credo expressed in Visions of the Daughters of Albion and elsewhere that, quote, everything that lives is holy. A very Blakean statement. He, he uses it several times. And that the sympathy with, um, with all living things, sinful and righteous alike, which the imaginative arts awaken, is that forgiveness of sins commanded by Christ. Uh, it seems to be very bleak in that, that Yeats has formulated. The sympathy with all living things that Yeats is talking about here is encapsulated in the credo expressed in Visions of the Daughters of Albion and elsewhere that, quote, everything that lives is holy. A very Blakean statement. He, he uses it several times. Finally, on Blake's use of the term power, as a designation of inner force that is connected with something transcendent, then projected outwards into art, we get an example of a thoroughly romantic concept very prevalent in Wordsworth's poetry, say. If you look at the opening of the prelude, where Wordsworth is talking about two liberating breezes, one outer and one inner, um, with their, quote, their congenial powers stimulating him to return to the lakes, this is exactly the, 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 or a parallel sense or use of this word power, or where Wordsworth says, thence did I drink the visionary power. A very romantic word. You don't get this, shall we say, for the sake of argument, before 1760. This is something very new. 
And romantic, too, is the whole idea of the illuminated book with its creation of a new composite art form, combining the separate arts of poetry, painting, engraving, design, and printing. Here is one, very quickly, one example, which is the, the use of this word power, or where Wordsworth says, thence did I drink the visionary power. A very romantic word. You don't get this, shall we say, for the sake of argument, before 1760. This is something very new. And romantic, too, is the whole idea of the illuminated book with its creation of a new composite art form, combining the separate arts of poetry, painting, engraving, design, and printing. Here is one, very quickly, one example, which is the beginning of the prophecy section of America. I can't go into this now, but there is a lot one could say about the way in which Blake divides up the page. Um, into text and illustration and links the actions of the various little uh, beings there, human and divine, and the fires and that, with what is going on in, um, in the text. Uh, <coughs> Blake thought of, um, of them all as belonging together, the separate arts as he indicates in passage 10 on the sheets. Um, if you look at passage 10, um, you get this. It's from a letter to Dawson Turner. I'll say a little bit about this. Those I printed for Mr. Humphrey are a selection from the different books of such as could be printed without the writing. He's talking about um, full-page illustrations from the illuminated books that he could do separate from the text. Um, Though to the loss of some of the best things, for they, when printed perfect, accompany poetical personifications and acts, without which poems they never could have been executed. Um, in this letter to Dawson Turner, who was a prospective buyer of Blake's work um, and an antiquarian, botanist, and patron of the arts, hailing from Great Yarmouth, actually, Blake is saying that although he has already provided a selection of those full-page illustrations, detachable because without text, this is not an ideal situation. For they, when printed perfect, accompany poetical personifications and so on. It is as if they are being uprooted from their place in an aesthetic environment necessary for them really to flourish. And they are dependent for their existence on certain poetical personifications and acts, indicating thereby their essentially integrative nature. Now, as aesthetic objects encapsulating poems and designs that embody a remarkable inner journey, plus a diagnosis of the age's ills, Blake's illuminated books are of great cultural import, since they mark a unique attempt to reintegrate the arts after their post-medieval fragmentation. Um, indeed, as we shall see, we get in Blake's work, I think, a reintegration on two levels. Aesthetic, as I've pointed out here, and also inner psychic. But I won't have time to deal with that uh, um, this evening. But it seems to me that they both parallel each other. Via a conscious return to the model of manuscript illumination based on relief etching and hand coloring, when the sacred precinct or temenus of the church was the aesthetic spiritual center containing painting, music, chant, and architecture, Blake is clearly returning to a unified and sacral form of art. 
Moreover and further, he's creating some of the first modern art books, integrated works of craftsmanship that were inspirational for the pre-Raphaelites um, and William uh, Morris. For instance, one can look in this light at the next slide, which is taken, which is the frontispiece to the Chelmscott Chaucer of um, 1896. It's very different from Blake, of course, but the, um, the same connection between text and, 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 and illustration. And also, um, Morris says at some point that it had a definite, or he wishes it to have a definite claim to beauty. This is one of the inspirational things behind these, uh, these aesthetic objects I'm talking about, that beauty is, 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 is um, right at the, um, at the base of all this. And in the effusion of the arts, um, Blake can be seen to anticipate Wagner's concept of the Gesamtkunstwerk, or total work of art, as well as Morris's um, own designed and unified house interiors recalling houses from the Gothic period, because it's essentially what we get here. I don't have to. Probably my fingers aren't doing what they should do. Yes. Um, this is the same thing only in terms of interior uh, design and that. This is the Acanthus room from Whitewick Manor in Staffordshire. Um, and, but the wallpaper is probably a bit earlier from about 1875. But it's a marvelous kind of, of, of creation um, employing various arts of furniture, wallpaper, um, design, uh, you name it. Now, all three artists I see as being very similar in one way. Uh, they are making a communal protest against the encroaching industrialism, materialism, and ugliness of their age. For what Blake, Wagner, and Morris are creating are oases of beauty and spirit in an increasingly hostile, denatured environment, and which Blake, with his dark satanic mills, was one of the first to recognize. Indeed, their works can be seen as visual, oral, and spatial versions of paradise within the realities of the wasteland. Um, roundabout, as it were. Something which takes us back, of course, to poetry, painting, and music, the three powers of, in man of conversing with paradise. Now, the third section of what I want to say, the nature and mode of Blakeian perception and imagination. In his letter to the Reverend Dr. Tresler of the 23rd of August, 1799, uh, this, um, I won't read this particular um, passage. It's passage 16 on your sheet, but this is an absolute uh, um, um, kind of credo from Blake's point of view. But I will mention something else that, that comes in the letter earlier. Uh, Blake can be seen to be defending and explaining his art and its attendant mode of perception to a prospective buyer of his work, to whom he has clearly sent some examples on approval and who has replied negatively. Dr. Trusler has obviously experienced difficulty in understanding what it is he has been sent. For in the first paragraph of his letter, Blake has said this. This is not on your sheets. You say that I want somebody to elucidate my ideas. But you ought to know that what is grand is necessarily obscure to weak men. <laughs> that which can be made explicit to the idiot is not worth my care. The wisest of the ancients considered what is not too explicit as the fittest for instruction because it rouses the faculties to act. Of course, Blake's anger is here quite apparent. 
But what is central is first that the poet artist is quite aware of the fact that his grand themes may well be a source of obscurity to some potential viewers or readers, but that second, the relatively non-explicit character of his work is best suited to instruct since it stimulates and stirs the mind actively, not passively, engages its, its, its attention, and so presumably induces the best possible state of mind for receiving the required directives. Moral painting is the term Blake uses for the kind of art he and Trusler are arguing about, hence his phrase, the fittest for instruction. An energized mind in which the faculties are roused to act would therefore seem essential for absorbing and, comprehend, and comprehending Blake's own moral painting. He is thereby putting in our hands a significant tool for understanding his own work. That is, we should first of all allow this work to rouse our faculties to act. And this stress on what Blake elsewhere and throughout his poetry refers to as mental action characterizes both his paintings and his poems. For these, with some exceptions, are rarely still and contemplative, like Blake's own mind, but are full of movement, activity of one kind or another, swirling and agitated figures, usually expressing extreme states of emotion, presented in an extremely simplified, abstract form, as T.S. Eliot wonderfully put it, though with the lyrics of songs of innocence and experience in mind. And then with Blake's own statement, this is passage nine on your sheets, very short though, art can never exist without naked beauty displayed before us, which applies quite literally to almost all the artist's pictures, uh, where everything appears in terms of floating spiritualized bodies in see-through garments. Um, I give you this example of the ascension in this way which Blake painted in watercolor, it's from the Fitzwilliam Cambridge, 1808. Statement, this is passage nine on your sheets, very short though, art can never exist without naked beauty displayed before us, which applies quite literally to almost all the artist's pictures, uh, where everything appears in terms of floating spiritualized bodies in see-through garments, Um, I give you this example of the Ascension in this way, which Blake painted in watercolor. It's from the Fitzwilliam Cambridge, 1808. Um, and these are definitely what, what I call floating spiritualized body. Um, we can bring in Eliot's most wonderful sentence. Eliot says, he was naked and saw man naked and from the center of his own crystal. Added to with this. This is Eliot again. He approached everything with a mind unclouded by current opinions. There was nothing of the superior person about him. This makes him terrifying. Equally so, only sometimes for the young Blake himself, were the visions he, we know he experienced as a child and boy. Also later. The early ones were recorded by Frederick Tatham, one of the poet's circle of friends in his later years, and were passed on to Alexander Gilchrist, his first biographer. Thus we know that as a four-year-old, God was seen to put his head to the window at the top of the stairs in Broad Street, Carnaby Market, where Blake was born, making the child scream. Then, when about eight years old, returning from a walk in the Dulwich area, he said he had seen a tree full of angels in Peckham Rye, 
their bright wings bespangling the boughs like stars. His father almost beat him for this, apparently, but his mother intervened. About the same time, nevertheless, she herself beat him for running in and saying that he saw the prophet Ezekiel under a tree in the fields. <laughs> and later again, he reported having spotted angelic figures out walking among the haymakers in the harvest fields. As the critic F.W. Bateson was the first, as far as I know, to point out, it would appear that all the happy visions here take place um, in um, uh, here take place in rural surroundings. 18th century London being open to the countryside from many angles, whereas the frightening vision referred to, like others, is urban. A division of settings paralleled in the main by Songs of Innocence with their valleys wild and rural pen, churches. Indeed, throughout the rest of Blake's poetry and painting, we find a maintained opposition between the pastoral and the urban industrial, with its mills and furnaces. As witness his father figure, Urizen, and his young adversary, Ork. I'll just show you these briefly. This is the representative, this is from America, of the father figure. Usually under his arms, he has the tablets of the moral law, of the, of the Mosaic law. Um, and he is the, 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 the forces of, of reaction, if you like, and repression in Blake's early um, uh, um, prophetic books, and he represents rationality apart from anything else. Whereas his adversary is this character, young, dynamic, daimonic, if you like. One clear thing seems, seems to emerge now from all four visionary experiences just detailed, namely that there is nothing at all mystical about them. Blake's often called a mystic. I don't think he is, at least in, if we mean by mystical, a searching for and groping after the inaccessible and ineffable. There's no Wordsworthian sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused where, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns. This is Tintin Abbey, of course. For these are all startlingly clear visual projections in Blake, with nothing at all vague, obscure, or wraith-like about them. Um, as in the crucial adult vision Blake experienced in 1787 when his gifted younger brother Robert dies from consumption, and at the moment of death he catches sight of his brother's soul rising through the ceiling, clapping its hands for joy. Um, he had gone without sleep for a fortnight while nursing Robert, apparently, and then, uh, um, and then slept for three consecutive days. Within a year or two, Blake begins to create his first illuminated book, The Two Small Tractates, There Is No Natural Religion and All Religions Are One, 1788, which he attributed to a post-mortem communication from his brother. And then, as the diarist Henry Crabb Robinson said in 1826, after many conversations with the poet, his paintings are copies of what he sees in his visions. This is why I prefer the term visionary. Blake is a visionary, also in a very primitive, uh, not a primitive, that's not the best word, um, in a very kind of um, pristine way. Now, in two letter poems written to his patron Thomas Butts in 1800 and 1802, we get the only accounts of actual visions which Blake has left us both sent from the village of Felpham on the coast near Chichester and the only place the Blakes lived in outside London. The first of these, to my friend Butts I write, my first vision of light, is set on the seashore. This is passage 15. If you could turn to this, this is very interesting. 
To my friend, at the bottom of page two, the, to my friend Batz, I write my first vision of light on the yellow sand sitting. The sun was emitting his glorious beams from heaven's high streams. Over sea, over land, my eyes did expand into regions of air, away from all care, into regions of fire remote from desire. The light of the morning, heaven's mountains adorning, in particles bright, the jewels of light, distinct shone and clear. Amazed and in fear, I each particle gazed, astonished, amazed, for each was a man human formed. And then he goes on and says, swift I ran, and so on and so forth. And he sees all these details, and then these turn into one large man, one grand man. Um, what we get here is a description of an actually, actual visionary unfolding, whereby a process of visual and visionary expansion, then specific focusing occurs in a kind of dual mode of perception. Um, here we get a concentration on the jewels of light, which on closer inspection, i.e. each particle gaze, turn into small men. And in connection with this, um, I want to quote from Kathleen Raines Blake in Tradition, who has an exceptionally interesting passage on this vision poem, where she says, quoting Kathleen, now, what follows is the Swedenborgian vision of each particle of light and each grain of sand as men seen afar. What she's referring to is Swedenborg's um, kind of basic way of visualizing things in things like heaven and hell, but altogether the, the phenomena of nature and that are seen in humanized forms. Now, the impact of Swedenborg was fairly early on Blake, but it seems to be also that this was preceded by the kind of visions he had when he was a child. So both go together. He humanizes all natural phenomena. Not only, obviously, the humans. Very often, he goes the other way, and he turns the humans into subhuman characters. But basically, he turns everything into, um, into humans. And therefore, the particles of light are seen here in the poem as men seen afar. But what is interesting then that, that Kathleen says is here, but the distinct particles of light are Newtonian. That is to say, the men that the particles of light are turned into are Swedenborgian, the particles of light themselves are Newtonian. And she suggests, I think, very conclusively that Blake had been reading Newton's optics in probably the 1721 edition. So you get again this peculiar mixture of enlightenment with non-enlightenment. Of course, uh, Blake is not saying at all that one wants to stay with the particles of light. He talks about Newton's uh, um, sleep, as it were. That's the single vision as it were, but certainly we go from the one to the other, as it were. Um, and <coughs> there's another letter poem that I haven't got on the sheets where he talks about a, a frowning thistle implores my stay, after which we read this, for double the vision my eyes do see and, uh, and a double vision is always with me. With my inward eye it is an old man grey, with my outward a thistle across my way. Interestingly, Blake feels the need to explain his mode of perception here, whereas in his early letter poem, he simply records the process as it happens. But in both cases, we find the same kind of perception at work. The natural phenomena themselves are observed and described. Then these transform themselves into human figures, as in a Blake painting. His visionary states, however, were capable of expanding or deepening beyond these, as... Um, 
passage 13 on the sheets makes clear. It's the bottom of page 2. Now, I have fourfold vision, see, and a fourfold vision is given to me. Um, it is fourfold in my supreme delight and threefold in soft Beulah's night and twofold always. May goddess keep from single vision and Newton's sleep. Um, basically, it seems, his mode of perception was twofold always, but then on occasion could become threefold in soft Beulah's night, an even more heightened state depicted in the manuscript poem The Crystal Cabinet as opening out into a little lovely moony light. Beulah being Isaiah's word for a um, restored Palestine and Bunyan's for the earthly paradise. And finally, a fourfold vision based on the quaternary structure of the world in terms of cardinal points and that of the human psyche, as in four agencies that Blake's call, Blake calls the four zoas, or beasts dwelling there. Four mighty ones are in every man. These he gives, name, gives names to, urizen, reason or thinking, thamus, body or sensation, lover, love or feeling, and athona, imagination or intuition. Jung's conception of the psyche is very close to this. And his so-called psychic functions are equally four in number, um, as here, thinking, sensation, feeling, and intuition. In Milton Plate 21, we get the following thumbnail sketch of the Zoas in their stations and compass points around the cosmic or world egg, with a brief reference to the fall, internal and external. Quote from Milton, Poor Milton, Plate 21. Four universes round the mundane egg remain chaotic. One to the north named Athona, one to the south named Urizen, one to the east named Lover, one to the west named Thamus. They are the four Zoas that stood around the, thr the throne divine, but when Lover assumed the world of Urizen to the south and Albion was slain upon his mountains and in his tent, all fell towards the centre in dire ruin, uh, sinking down. Blake's description and recreation here of what is, after all, a fairly widespread and traditional cosmological and mythic narrative, albeit renamed in terms of his Zoas, of the inner and outer universes, is a verbal transcription of the old age mandala design. There you have the illustration that Blake has put there. Um, as Kathleen Rain has pointed out, um, this is what Kathleen says, the orientation of the inner worlds is typically expressed in the mandala. Typical of the mandala is a fourfold structure of a square inscribed in a circle or a circle in a square. The fourfold city of St. John's Apocalypse is the type of Blake's city of Golganusa, the spiritual fourfold London and of Blake's four Zoas, the four living creatures that guide the chariot of Ezekiel and St. John's eagle, lion, ox and man. Blake, however, is very much preoccupied with the spiritual psychic disturbances preceding the attainment of a mandala state of being. As Kathleen says, this is the only visual mandala in the whole of Blake's works. Um, in particular, the internal conflicts and collisions operating between the primal state of innocence, that of the mythic paradise, and a regained sense of the same. His three later inner epics, the Four Zoas, Milton and Jerusalem, are basically psychodramas, which are all attempts, the same attempt at bottom, to solve these conflicts and reintegrate the self in one way or another. In some sense, there are, there are a more uh, these are a more complicated working and extension of the two-way 
adversarial conflict between Eurasian as rational establishment and AUKUS fiery rebellion at the heart of Blake's early prophecies. In both sets, conflict, opposition, and dissension are the moving forces of their author's myth and times. As the painter Cecil Collins uh, once put it, more disturbing is the fact that as he is painting, as Blake is painting the, ex the eternal vision, he's hung up in the world of human conflict. Blake is very like Beethoven. He's the Beethoven of painting at that time. I don't think it's an accident that they both lived at the same time. They both were in fierce reaction to 18th century rationalism. They both brought the 18th century to an end and both let loose the flood of romanticism which was based on conflict. Blake was saved by the greatness of the last works, but the whole of his work is disturbing in that it is unlike Buddhist art or the art of Byzantium, which is somehow an art of peace and serenity. Blake is not, uh, it's rarely like that anyway. <coughs> he has somehow invaded the eternal world with the struggle and conflict, unresolved himself, it seems to me. Very interesting statement. Now the fourth field, the impact of the Gothic revival. The 18th century Gothic revival, starting with Horace Walpole's um, Gothic novel, The Castle of, of Otranto, and the Gothicizing of Strawberry Hill Twickenham from 1747, The Castle of Otranto is 1764, by the way, exerted an immense influence on the surrounding culture, both in literature um, and architecture, let alone in shifts of sensibility that now accentuated extreme moods and atmospheres of gloom, terror, mystery, and eroticism. Just briefly to show you, I want of time to go into this. This is Horace Walpole, by the, painted by the German painter uh, J.C. Eckhart in the 1750s. Um, and this is the Long Gallery in Strawberry Hill from uh, um, it's, it's later than, 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 than 47, based on Henry VII's chapel in Westminster Abbey. Um, and we get the effects of, of these in Blake's poetical sketches printed in 1783. Many styles are, of course, being made use of here. The seasonal ode approach of James Thompson and William Collins, 18th century songs of melancholy and madness, Spenserian imitation and Shakespearean verse, the biblical Ossianic, and also the Gothic ballad of, ballads of Fair Eleanor and Gwyn, King of Norway. These all play a part, but to focus on the last mentioned, the Gothic ballad, we get phrases like, howling after me for blood, then rush past howling, howling like ghosts. They are typical Gothic novel kind of, of phrases and anticipate the more um, kind of, um, kind of uh, adult uh, things you get in The Sick Rose, the worm, the invisible worm who flies in the howling storm. Other verbs expressing extreme action or emotion could be listed as continuing threads. An orc's incipient breakout in America, quote, silent as despairing love and strong as jealousy, recalls Walpole's The Castle of Otranto's, quote, agony of despairing love. These are just some of the ingredients in Blake's Gothic mix, but he fuses them together in his own particular way. When we come to the pictorial art and recall passage eight on your sheets, it's just one sentence, Grecian is mathematic form, Gothic is living form, 
um, which after all enthuses over only one side of Blake's visual inheritance. We can, however, relate it back to the verbal Gothic just described, for there is a definite sense in which living form, as expressed in what Nicholas Pevsner has termed Blake's flaming line, which art historical he believes is derived from the undulating line of medieval psalters from the later 12th and 13th centuries, plus some Celtic sources as well as decorated Gothic architecture, is the direct visual equivalent of his verbal Gothic especially where the line flames and flows expressively, as in the two color prints, um, the Elohim creating Adam, and I'll show the other one, Pity. What is um, undoubtedly true here is that in the, um, here you see, first of all, the, the extreme emotions expressed on the face of God and on um, Adam here, who is in a cruciform position, very reminiscent of late uh, Gothic architecture and painting, particularly in Central Europe. Blake, may have, Blake saw a vast amount of stuff in engraved form. We don't know exactly how much and, 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 and what he saw. Um, I'll come back to this painting, if you keep it in mind, next week. Um, and here, of course, what is uh, very Gothic is the character down here. But pity like a naked newborn babe from Macbeth. You see, this is very much based on a Gothic tomb such as Blake uh, saw in Westminster Abbey. And of course, the discrepancy in size in Gothic painting and sculpture between the figure of pity as a little babe and the mother or the couriers of the air. Um, this suggests visually where um, some of his um, inspirations or, or his borrowings, if that's the word, comes from. And with regard to, um, oh yes, and to if you think also about the the slide I showed you of the ascension, I won't go back to it, these floating, long, elongated bodies, very Gothic in the way they are conceived. And Pevsner has this to say overall about um, uh, Blake's painting. I think it fits like a glove. No one can fail to recognize a Blake. Everywhere, whether the scene is one of bliss or terror, are his long, attenuated bodies, boneless almost, one feels so little does he articulate the nude body. So ready is he to bound the joints of an upstretched arm within gliding curves. Everywhere are his small, strangely impersonal heads and his flowing beards, his garments also flowing gently or falling loosely and evenly in perpendicular curves. They are of light immaterial stuff. The curves, however, according to the character of the scene, can be tense or tender, the lines flaming or flowing, that is inspired by, or sometimes rather in harmony with, Fuseli or Flaxman, who were both friends of Blake. Now, to some extent, I think one is reminded of El Greco and his mannerist elongation of floating or upward-gazing bodies, often distorted as with Blake and thereby spiritualized. At another level, the latter's distortions, uh, when as so often accompanied by emotional states, make his work proto-expressionist so that it is not for nothing that Blake has been seen, along with Grunewald, late medieval crucifixions from northern and central Europe, late Goya, Van Gogh, and Edvard Munch, as a source for expressionism itself in his fierce projection of inner worlds outwards. That would be a typical case in point. This is Munch, of course, the scream of 1893, and what Munch does with the body there, only in a very different way, is to rhythmicize and, and, and elongate the body for 
expressive purposes. Um, and Blake has been seen now as, as one of the ancestors of this whole movement. In fact, Robert Rosenblum, in his brilliant book, Modern Painting and the, Novel, and the Northern Romantic Tradition, Friedrich Rothko, sees his work as part of this specific legacy, something which fits in perfectly with his expressionist roots, since expressionism itself is North European in origin, not Mediterranean. And in all this, of course, we mustn't forget that Blake, during his apprenticeship with the antiquarian engraver, James Versailles, used to send his young trainee to Westminster Abbey. I think I've mentioned this, to draw the tombs and sculptures. And his early love of Gothic derived from this and never left him. But there's an interesting development from this, and this is the way in which the Gothic modulates into what you can call the overall antiquarian revival that marked the second half of the 18th century and included the discovery of Nordic, Welsh, and Gaelic literatures as witness Gray's Odes, The Bard, and The Descent of Odin, both of the late 1750s, James Macpherson's Ossian poems, um, and Bishop Percy's immensely popular Relics of Ancient English Poetry of, 18, of 1765, all of which Blake knew well early on, um, and the last but one of which he thought wasn't a forgery. Again, there were William Stukeley's books on Stonehenge and Avebury from as early as the 1740s, the new antiquarian interest in which began to percolate down the century and make Blake and others think they were built by the Druids. Then there was Thomas Chatterton, Wordsworth's marvellous boy, who committed suicide at 17, but left the medieval forgery of the Rowley poems. Taken altogether, the various trends, publications, and interests detailed here point to a radically new concern with Britain's past and its now more complexly seen origins, um, whatever their fantasized uh, reality, which itself indicates the rise of a new historical consciousness, marked most obviously by Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire. In Blake's own case, along with others, there were moves afoot to chart or rechart the spiritual, historical, and mythic origins of Britain by breaking back through the recently inherited genteel Augustan culture, now a brittle crust flaking like ice above a springtime river of newly discovered energies, to beyond even an opposing medieval Gothic age where questions of spiritual origin raise their head. One only has to think of, and did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? So he's relating up the past also to the future, out of a time of trouble. Finally, neoclassicism, or the Greek revival. It's necessary, first of all, to anticipate a possible confusion, namely that the neoclassicism referred to is not that used of the Augustan literature and culture of Pope and Dryden based on the Roman models of Virgil and Horace under Augustus, then carried into the early 19th century, um, in, into early 19th century architecture via the Neopalladianism of Lord Burlings, relating up the past also to the future, out of a time of trouble. Finally, neoclassicism, or the Greek revival. It's necessary, first of all, to anticipate a possible confusion namely that the neoclassicism referred to is not that used of the Augustan literature and culture of Pope and Dryden, based on the Roman models of Virgil and Horace under Augustus, then carried into the early 19th century 
um, in, into early 19th century architecture via the Neopalladianism of Lord Burlington, for instance, at Chiswick House, who uh, um, he was Pope's patron. It's a term used mainly in art history, referring to the visual arts. Also includes thoughts and ideals, however, um, and is characterized by a shift from Latin to Greek ideals and models and, and, and uh, to Greek ideals and models, European in scope. Those of you who were old enough and also remember it or went to it, in um, um, 1972 in the Royal Academy, there was a massive exhibition called The Age of Neoclassicism, which, which, which was very interesting indeed. Um, perhaps the prime motivator of what also became known as the Greek Revival, that included Thomas Taylor, philosopher and translator of Plato, um, unknown personally to Blake, was a brilliant German scholar, J.J. Winkelmann, who founded the modern study of Greek art and whose reflections on the painting and sculpture of the Greeks, 1755, was translated into English ten years later by Blake's close friend, the painter Henry Fuseli. His redefining of the spasm, which, which, which was very interesting indeed, um, Perhaps the prime motivator of what also became known as the Greek Revival, that included Thomas Taylor, philosopher and translator of Plato, um, unknown personally to Blake, was a brilliant German scholar, J.J. Winkelmann, who founded the modern study of Greek art and whose reflections on the painting and sculpture of the Greeks, 1755, was translated into English ten years later by Blake's close friend, the painter Henry Fuseli. His redefining of the spirit of Greek sculpture as expressing a noble simplicity and quiet grandeur, an edle Einfalt und stille Größe, and precision of contour, that characteristic distinction of the, of the ancients, and went all through Europe, influencing poets such as Byron and Goethe. This definition we can now use as a pointer to mark and characterize the cultural shift from Augustine to neoclassical. For the noble simplicity and quiet grandeur Winkelmann speaks of was now employed right across the board in architecture, interior decoration, fashion, painting, sculpture, pottery, and ideas. And I can go quickly through these because I've run out of time, but you, you will see what I mean. This is, of course, pure Augustine, 1740s, John Wood, Wood mainly the younger, I think, and is civic and um, very kind of solid and down-to-earth. The Greek Revival comes out in this crescent, which is John Nash's um, um, famous um, um, terrace um, park crescent in Regent's Park, 1812 to 1822. And you notice the difference because there, the airy qualities of the detached pillars, can you see, and the whole kind of structure of the facade, give it a lightness, give it a kind of a spirituality, if you like, that's totally missing from the earlier um, um, crescent. And then we go on to this. This, this is um, uh, a print from 18, um, yes, 1822. It's a bit late. Henry Moses, who was involved in the, was, had a job in the British Museum, uh, uh, Domestic Life of the Aristocracy. And here you see the women dressed in typically, well, what they thought of as being Greek uh, dresses and that, and also the new type of Greek furniture, and also what you have on, on, um, on the wall. This is all part of, a, of what they call the Grecian taste, which is fashionable right the way throughout the Regency. And of course, this more specifically, if you look at the, at the um, ladies' dresses there, are, are based, as they thought, on the Greek. And 
this is to show you the contrast. This comes from the 1790s. is um, is a watercolor by Edmund Days of a group uh, um, in front of Buckingham House, St James's Park, 1790. And they, of course, are in late 18th century bustles, the lady, ladies, and in bridges. Trousers have come in in the meantime on the last slide. Oh, yes, I'll come on to this now very briefly because some of the key figures now were Antonio Canova, the, uh, the Three Graces, of course, um, and um, Jacques-Louis David, the revolutionary painter, the painter of the revolution, Flaxman, Angra, and Josiah Wedgwood. Yes. This is the Portland vase. I haven't got time to go into this. Catherine Wayne has a lot on this and its influence on specific Blake poems in her big book, Bake and Tradition. Um, this is 1879. It was engraved by Blake for Erasmus Darwin's Botanic Garden of 1791. So he knew it. At least he knew it from a replica. Various replicas were made. It was purchased by the Duke of Portland from Sir William Hamilton in 1786 and um, became very famous in replica form particularly, and illustrates the Eleusinian mysteries. Um, yes, this is Fuseli, uh, the nightmare. Uh, the figures have something Blakean, but he's much more erotic. But also going into the what you might call the unconscious, the dream world, as it were. And this is James Barry. Um, this is a history painting, King Lear weeping over the dead body of Cordelia, 18, uh, 1786 to um, 88. And there, what is interesting, you get Stonehenge in the background, you get this kind of pseudo-Greek helmet and costume here, and you get King Lear with hair flowing out like Euryzen, um with his compasses. So you can see how Blake's paintings fit into this kind of history painting. Anyway, briefly to come to a close as quick as I can, um, to sum up, or to just bring in some of the main themes very quickly. Um, preceding the slides I've been showing you, it's important to mention the, mention the crucial archaeological discoveries of, of Herculaneum of 1738 and Pompeii 1741 with their Hellenistic wall paintings, mosaics, and Greek vases out of which Sir William Hamilton, British ambassador in Naples, formed two major collections, and his wife Emma became famous for her so-called so attitudes, poses, gestures, and movements, in specially designed Greek costumes that entranced all the privileged guests who saw her. Goethe was one, and of course I take it Lord Nelson was another. At almost the same time, the aristocratic society of dilettanti sent out two young architects, James Stewart and Nicholas Rivette, to Athens, not Rome, to make drawings from the sculptures and ruins they saw there. As it transpired, they stayed four years, and in 1762 published their Antiquities of Athens, which Blake knew, probably from his time at Henry Parr's drawing school in the Strand, where, which he attended from the age of 10 to 15, before being apprenticed to Bazaar. So the neoclassical precedes the neo-Gothic in the young Blake's artistic experience. Um, and what uh, was later called the Grecian taste therefore became deeply um, embedded. Nevertheless, Blakean design and painting, the poetry likewise, are an original yet often idiosyncratic mixture of the neoclassical and the neo-Gothic, veering more to the classic and pastoral when innocence is evoked, more to the expressive Gothic when the suffering of experience is being depicted. 
with, of course, sometimes uneven marriages between the two all over. Highly successful, for instance, I think, is the pure neoclassicism of the Newton color print, equally so the tortured neo-Gothic of the Elohim creating Adam. Uh, but there are, of course, other things going, uh, themes coming into here, not least the newly emerging theme of what, which came into neoclassicism but went elsewhere as well, of what one might, might call the heroic. And the heroic uh, came about to some extent from the way in which the figure of Homer supplanted that of Virgil. The great person to, or the great persons to, to imitate in the age of Pope and Dryden were um, Virgil and Horace. This switched over to Homer in the later part of the, 19, of the 18th century, um, also because um, Homer was then seen to be, um, as a blind bard, he fitted in with the rediscovery of Celtic sources with Thomas Gray as, as being a bard, but because being blind, he was also much more inspired, as it were. And we get, therefore, via Homer, or the setting up of Homer as a model, a new injection of the mythic and the heroic, both of which qualities characterize so many of Blake's figures. And, and as they do, the protagonists in his later epics and those of Byron and Shelley. Thus the hero, and sometimes the heroine, is at the center of neoclassical thought. In Jacques-Louis David's revolutionary heroes as portraits of Napoleon, and of course, Beethoven's Heroica Symphony. This fits in absolutely. Um, and finally, it's the heroes and the angels and the devils, not the saints or the mystics, the former being highly Baroque, a movement that neoclassicism was against, which seemed to be of the essence, of the ideal essence, and the intellectuality of Blake and neoclassicism. Thank you.